I think one of the lessons learned is to try policy programs where we are not 100% sure that they work, but where we are sort of sure that they don't cause harm. I'm your host, Carly Sheridan, but in today's episode of Women in Economics, I'm passing the mic to Paul Donovan, the chief economist at UBS Global Wealth Management. He hosted a roundtable discussion focused on how monetary and fiscal policies have reacted to the pandemic and the lessons we've learned since 2008. Take it away, Paul. Hello, I'm Paul Donovan. Welcome to this Women in Economics discussion, where I'm joined today by two fantastic economists. We have Lucrezia Reichlin, Professor of Economics at the London Business School and a fellow and trustee of the CEPR, and Stephanie Schmidt-Grohe, Professor at Columbia University and fellow at the CEPR. How would you describe the changes economies have been making to their monetary and fiscal policies in response specifically to the, the pandemic crisis? Lucrezia. I think that the main change has been in the policy mix. In monetary policy, we have seen a massive intervention, more aggressive use of quantitative easing and uh, changes in the way they design these lending programs to banks. So we have seen a massive increase in the size of the balance sheet in the euro system. What we have seen, especially in the US, is massive uh, use of fiscal policy. Less so in Europe, but still the policy mix has been more tilted towards fiscal than monetary this time. Stephanie, how do you view the fiscal and monetary changes that we've been seeing? Yeah, I mean, the pandemic-induced crisis is different than any crisis I think we have seen in post-World War II times. A typical economic crisis is on the demand side. There's something happening that consumers don't want to spend money. In the pandemic, there is this element as well. But the other element is that there's a problem on the supply side. Many restaurants have closed. Firms cannot produce. Manufacturing units are closed. There's a shock to the supply side of the economy and a shock to the demand side of the economy. And another thing that is special about the pandemic is... It is a truly global crisis. Let me talk about the U.S. a little bit. They had um, a monetary policy intervention. There was also a big fiscal intervention. Um, This is a supply side problem also. So there's no production and there are a lot of people who don't have any income. So in the U.S., a decision was made to go big on fiscal policy Under the Biden administration, we are looking at an additional partially passed, partially non-passed legislation to bring total fiscal stimulus to $9 trillion. Let's put that a little bit into perspective. U.S. GDP is around, if we take an average over the last two years, is about $21 trillion. So this is a suggestion to spend 43% of GDP, right? And that is unprecedented. And is it surprising? Well, it's an unprecedented crisis. So I think if you ask us how have um, monetary and fiscal policy responded to the crisis, I think the most notable part is what has happened, at least in the US, on the fiscal side. How would you say the monetary policy frameworks, or I suppose more broadly the central bank policy frameworks, including quantitative policy, have changed during this crisis compared to a more classic recession recovery scenario? Monetary policy responded 
very quickly. So in the US, as the pandemic surprised the world, the normal interest rate was 1.75%. At that point, the Fed within 10 days immediately lowered the policy interest rate to zero, basically. What is the idea there? That is a very classic demand instrument. People have a consumption saving choice. If the interest rate is really low, saving doesn't look very attractive. So the hope is that instead of saving, you go out and spend and you consume. I think the more impressive thing they did was on quantitative easing. So once the normal interest rate was at zero, they increased the balance sheet um, by $3.6 trillion. This is an enormous amount of money relative to the size of the balance sheet of the U.S. And a lot of people were thinking, wow, if we increase the money supply, roughly speaking, by a factor of six, we should see 500% inflation because many people come from a quantity theory view. So if you increase the money supply by a factor of six, you should see that the price level goes up by a factor of six. And what do we learn from 2008? We learned that that logic might apply in many cases, but in the special case, when the normal interest rate is held at zero, this logic doesn't apply. We had a six-fold increase in the money supply and we had no inflation in the sense that, the say, the US, they have an inflation target of 2%, and if at all, they undershot the inflation target. There was no overshooting. Why does the central bank get into increasing the money supply so massively? The main motivation here is to say in these extraordinary circumstances, we want to make sure that there's liquidity, that markets functions. So we don't want that because of the crisis, suddenly there's an unnecessary exacerbation of the economic conditions. So they wanted to lubricate the markets and they had learned a lot from 2008 to do this. Lucrezia, you were of course at the ECB back in 2008, so we have an insider's perspective perhaps in terms of changing policy tools in periods of turbulence. How do you think the ECB has adapted its policy framework and and how successful has that adaption been in providing support across the Eurozone economy? The framework of monetary policy at the ECB has evolved greatly in the last uh, 15 years. Uh, There has been uh, a reluctance in 2007, 2008, and then in the years that follow, to use the traditional quantitative easing tools that had been used in the Bank of England and at the Fed. However, that doesn't mean that the ECB didn't also implement what we call balance sheet policies. In 2008, the ECB expanded the balance sheet just as a consequence of this program of special loans to banks at a fixed rate. People think of quantitative easing of something that you do when interest rate is at zero, so you cannot use interest rate tool anymore and you have to do something else. Actually, the ECB experience shows that the expansion of the balance sheet is actually the endogenous consequence of liquidity policies, which the ECB has been very good at implementing, especially in the first phase of the crisis in 2007-2008. Then, of course, as the crisis has evolved, you know, after the debt crisis of 2010 and 2011, uh, you know, the ECB had to kind of uh, adapt even further. 
we can say now with the benefit of insight that there was quite a lot of hesitation on, uh, for example, implementing a, a program of purchases of sovereign bonds or, or uh, corporate bonds. That was all implemented at ACB at the end of 2014, 2015. But this time with COVID, uh, actually there was no hesitation. The ACB was uh, implemented and the sovereign purchase uh, program and the corporate bonds program immediately as the crisis manifested itself uh, and uh, the increase in the balance sheet. I agree with Stephanie that the experience of the last 12 years uh, show us uh, that uh, the expansion of a balance sheet of the central bank is not necessarily inflationary. The response at the ECB was to satisfy the demand for liquidity coming from the banking sector. So at a fixed rate, they were supplying the liquidity that the banking sector was requesting. And because that demand was satisfied, you know, really there is no reason why there should be inflationary pressures. So we have learned that lesson. I have to say, I, I think one of the biggest struggles I have in speaking with clients around the world is to sort of distinguish between printing money and printing too much money, to your point about satisfying liquidity demand. What lessons do you think have been learnt from the events of 2008, which have actually helped stabilise the response in 2020 and 2021? Did we make the right changes 12 years ago to create greater stability today in dealing with this crisis? Lucrezia, would you like to take that one? Yeah, I think for sure what we learned in the previous crisis uh, is that uh, we started fiscal consolidation too early. Countries were pushed to start a process of fiscal consolidation. There is now a large consensus that this was the wrong thing to do so that policies were pro-cyclical and so that fiscal policy was uh, heading in the opposite direction than monetary policy. So now this time, Europe actually having learned that lesson put together a bunch of policies which were quite innovative. Well, first of all, discontinued the fiscal rules so that countries could go for these programs of basically uh, support uh, businesses and households which were out of business because of the lockdown. At the federal level, we launched this recovery plan, which is very innovative in a number of ways because the European Union goes to the market uh, and issued debt, which guaranteed the EU budget. This uh, had happened before, but not in this quantity. The other innovative aspect is that there is a strong uh, uh, redistribution element. So countries get the money not in relation to size, but in relation to need. So I think the lesson was learned that uh, we had to be more proactive uh, on the fiscal side. Stephanie, do you think the US has taken lessons from the 2008 crisis and, and applied them more particularly this time around? I think one of the lessons learned was when the Bananka Fed in 2008 went for massive quantitative easing, they knew themselves not for sure whether it would help. They had sort of a rough idea. They said, we have a big crisis. They went for the policy, let's throw everything we have at it. Let's throw all the noodles against the wall. And when it stick, we know we have found something. They gained some confidence from that. They went for massive quantitative easing, and I think it helped. So this approach of trying to do something in a crisis that has not been proven, if we at least have a sense that it may not hurt a lot, 
is something we should go for. This is a different crisis. It's a crisis with a big supply side component to it. And the U.S. went for a massive fiscal stimulus. There is this idea that if a government starts spending a lot of money, it might be financed by printing money. And therefore, the fiscal stimulus itself might be the reason why inflation in the United States goes up. If we are a little bit more formal as economists, that's called a regime of fiscal dominance. For the current pandemic, the fiscal response, I think, is experimental. We don't know for sure whether it will help. Are we sure it will cause no harm? And if we were really in a situation where this massive fiscal stimulus in the United States was perceived by market participants as sooner or later being financed through money creation, there should be an expectation of inflation going up. This fear that the big fiscal stimulus will be financed by money creation, I cannot see confirmed in the data. I think one of the lessons learned is to try policy programs where we are not 100% sure that they work, but where we are sort of sure that they don't cause harm. So in 2008, we learned that if we keep the normal interest rate anchored at zero and we increase the money supply sixfold, we didn't think it would create inflation. It, we didn't know whether it would help and we went for this policy instrument. And now we are going for a massive fiscal stimulus and we know as the, the U.S. is probably the country in the world that can provide the risk-free asset and can commit to not um, switching to inflationary finance. And I think so far, this seems to be working in the sense that the fiscal stimulus has not raised inflationary expectations in a way that is quantitatively relevant. We are trying this and it seems to be working in that sense. I agree with Stephanie, the long-term inflation expectations are amazingly well anchored. I think one of the things that the pandemic has demonstrated is you can't trust the data. The uh, sentiment surveys were horrendous at measuring what was going on in the economy. And so we've, we've seen both in the private sector and in the public sector, thinking particularly about the UK Office of National Statistics, an attempt to move... I think, far more towards more creative ways of, of assessing the economy, the use of big data, now casting to try and get a better sense of what's going on in the economy overall. Lucrezia, is it something that policymakers are embracing properly? Or are they still sticking to the methodology of GDP designed you know, almost 100 years ago and saying that's how we should be looking at the world? Well, when there are these big changes, okay, in the way in which uh, the economy works, uh, so no model can do a good job at forecasting or now casting. Any model bases forecast uh, on estimates of correlations uh, which are in the past. So actually for the traditional model now casting, this was not a good crisis, uh, but it was a good crisis for people who have been trying to use creatively some non-standard data set. There is no way that when 80% of the economy is locked down, that you could have a forecasting model that works. What you can do, it is scenarios. This is the instrument that is used when there is deep uncertainty. You have no idea what's going on, basically. So you make some assumptions uh, about some elements uh, of the economy 
and uh, you put this input and then uh, you do a conditional forecast on those assumptions, which is judgmental. And this is an instrument that can help. I would say that for forecasters, this has been the lesson of this crisis. So use of uh, scenarios and stress test type of uh, analysis and uh, be creative with the data, but also understanding the limitation of this new data for forecasting the aggregate issues. Stephanie, we've been talking about a very radical set of changes in the global economy. And it, I mean, I, I have to say that whilst it's been a very stressful period, I think the last 12 months has been a fascinating period in the world economy. It's, it's been a fantastic time to be an economist. I agree with you that the last 12 months have been very fascinating. And if we think about the output of economists, a lot is going to be about the COVID pandemic. And I think there's going to be a lot of research shifted towards the interaction between fiscal policy and monetary policy. This is the lovely thing about pandemics. Every pandemic ends and this pandemic also is going to end. And so we know there's going to be normal again, right? And so this brings me to the idea, what should be normal for a central bank? Many central banks around the world have either as a heritage from the 2008 crisis or from the current pandemic, they have what I would call non-normal interest rate. They are at minus 40 basis points for the ECB. The Bank of Japan is at negative interest rates. Many, many countries have interest rates either at zero or near zero. And so they will have to come this period of normalization. And when you talk to these central banks, they all say, at least before the pandemic came, they had the same problem. They're saying, yes, we would like to normalize, but the only way I can imagine the way to normalization is very painful because it will involve raising rates. And raising rates is recessionary. And if you're an open economy, it appreciates your currency. But I think one can broaden the horizon a little bit and think about what is normalization. Is normalization a transitory increase in the normal interest rate, or is it a permanent one? What do we think is the long-run value? And so I think the way to think about it is, what happens if we have a permanent increase in normal interest rate? Because that is what, for me, normalization means. The current situation of negative normal interest rates is the exception, but not the long-run value. And I think there is economic theory and empirical work in economics, which shows that if you have... A normalization understood as something that is there to stay, then these effects of raising rates actually all have the opposite sign of what you're used to thinking about when you think about transitory changes. I would like to say one thing. This is a crisis that uh, affected everybody. This is true initially, but uh, I think the crisis is quite different right now uh, around the world. And this is a huge factor of risk uh, and uh, which will have uh, indirect effect on future monetary and fiscal policies. Given the fact that there is a large part of the world uh, which uh, does not have enough uh, vaccines and uh, is uh, really at risk of uh, a big catastrophe. I think that there is another element of stabilization policy which has to do with preparedness uh, and response of this kind of pandemics uh, when uh, there is such difference around the world about uh, the ability to manufacture vaccines, uh, the, to distribute, but also to monitor. 
This is not immediately related to monetary policy in our part of the world, but I think indirectly will have an effect on how countries will think about policies. I'd like to take this opportunity to thank uh, Lucrezia, Stephanie, for what's been a really interesting discussion about an absolutely fascinating period of economic history and the way in which policymakers and economists are reacting to the, the challenges that have come in the pandemic and, of course, in the aftermath of the pandemic. If you enjoyed today's podcast, I hope you'll tune in next week when the podcast will be discussing how to break the poverty trap. Thank you very much for listening. Women in Economics is brought to you by UBS and the Center for Economic Policy Research, CEPR. It's hosted by me, Carly Sheridan, produced and sound engineered by Zoo Agency Berlin, with music provided by Artlist. Help us usher in this new era of economics by sharing the episode with a friend, relative, or colleague, and be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The featured persons and the Center for Economic Policy Research are not affiliated with UBS. This presentation is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice or the basis for making any investment decisions. The views and opinions expressed may not be those of UBS. UBS does not verify and does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of the information presented.